Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining. Today we are going to continue to study Haggadah Shal Pesach, our Passover Seder handbook. We are in the midst of learning about the hollow. And there's a little bit of a segue to today's class. I'd like to return to a statement that is found in Mesechet Psachim, Tractate Psachim, Page 118, side A, just about smack in the middle. We mentioned this Gemara a number of episodes ago. And I want to share its words with some commentary because it seems to me, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that it is important for us to frame the Halal in the Haggadah in a unique fashion in order to understand and appreciate why we're actually mouthing, chanting, singing these words on Pesach. Haggadah in depth, part 33 of the series, Raised from Dust. We're going to be looking at the second half of the first paragraph of the Halal, which comprises the 113th Psalm. Now, with regard to the hollow that's lifted from Psalms 113 through Psalms 118, the Gemara in Mesechet Psachim asks a burning question. Since we have a psalm that speaks of Hashem's everlasting kindness, and since that psalm is called Halel Hagodol, the great song or the great praise. So the Gemara queries, Since we have this very important halal, Why do we focus on this one? And the Gemara says, that's because Mishum sheyesh boy heidvarim because the hollow that you and I know of, the hollow which we learned yesterday is labeled Egyptian, contains within it five important components. The Gemara has a commentary, a commentary written by a sage who called his work Menachem Meshiv Nafshi. Menachem Meshiv Nafshi maintains that these five components contain within them the ingredients of redemption. This is the true song of redemption. And that's why whenever we celebrate a Jewish holiday, we, we speak of redemption. Passover speaks of redemption. That is the original redemption. The festivities and observance of Pesach are incomplete 
without the counting up for seven weeks, and then observing and celebrating the capstone, which was receiving the Torah. Being freed from Mitzrayim without receiving the Torah is actually pointless. And as we learned in our analysis of the song called Dayenu, it's not even enough for us to receive the Torah. Ultimately, we need to arrive in the land of Israel and we need to have the Beit HaMikdash in its rightful place. That is the true story of the eternal message of Pesach. Hashem redeemed us, transformed us, elevated us, gave us His Torah and His mitzvahs, and empowered us to continue to experience a reclamation of that glorious moment. Sometimes we make mistakes, we slip or trip, and we can always get back onto the highway, so to speak. That's why the Dagino song concludes with the words, Uvano lono es beis habachira. He built for us that chosen home. The chosen home which serves l'chaper al kolo To enable us to transcend our shortcomings, our failings, and our iniquities. So here, this halal contains within it the essential ingredients of the Jewish journey of Exodus. The Heidvarim, which as the Menachem of Nafshi says, represents the idea of Geula. And that's why we recite it on Pesach, on Shavuot, on Sukkot, on Rosh Chodesh, on Hanukkah. The Gemara goes on to enumerate, as we've learned previously, what are the five components? Yetzias Mitzrayim, the actual Exodus. Seven days later, Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Reed Sea. And then seven weeks later, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. And then an event that has yet to happen, but was set in motion when Hashem gave us the Torah and resuscitated us multiple times, that presages, as the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin describes in great detail, the ultimate resurrection, the resuscitation of those who have passed on, which will unfold the Ezrat Hashem in the very near future with the coming of Mashiach. Where do we see the notion of Yetzias Mitzrayim. So the Gemara says, Yetzias Mitzrayim, Dichsiv, it says, Bitzait Yisrael mi Mitzrayim, when the Jewish people left the land of Egypt. And yet, that's the second chapter of Hallel. So why are we reciting the first chapter of Hallel? And as we spoke of in previous episodes, the Mishnah clearly states that according to Beis Shammai, we would only recite the first chapter of Hallel prior to the consumption of Korban Pesach. And the answer, my dear friends, as we learned yesterday in detail, is that the first chapter of Hallel narrates our exodus. It's the Egyptian song of praise because it was born on the night of redemption. And it narrates our journey in Mitzrayim. It's interesting to note that the Maharsha, in his comment on this Gemara, he emphasizes that it's not just five things. It's not just ideas of redemption. He says this contains ikre ho'emuna, 
the foundations of what we, the Jewish people, believe in, the credo of our Jewish faith. The notion of continually remembering Yitzias Mitzrayim is, as we learned previously, the notion of reclaiming in our lives Hashem's miracles, as per the commentary of Nachmanides and Abarbanel. And so, Kriyat Yamsuf essentially indicates God's ongoing creation, something we'll talk about, Bezrat Hashem, in the days ahead. And the point that I want to make as we segue into today's class is this. On the night of Pesach, we begin with the verses of praise called Hallel, not as an act of reciting Hallel per se at the Seder, but rather as a part of the narrative, the songful, praiseful, joyous part of the narrative. So when I'm going to teach these verses of Hallel today, I'm going to do it a little bit differently than studying the verses of Tillam. And parenthetically, for whatever it's worth, I have already recorded classes on the entirety of Hallel. But there I was teaching Tehillim. Much of the information that we spoke of and will speak of is also included in those classes, but it's a very different kind of study. There we focused on the verses of Tehillim in and of themselves. This presentation is about understanding Haggadah's Hallel how this specifically relates to the exodus that unfolded, the historic Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and ultimately, how it aids and assists us in our ongoing journey of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that's really the focus and the framing that we're going to employ during the course of the next hour. So, with no further ado, after this little segue, I thank you again for joining today. I remind anybody who's joining just now that I'd love it if you subscribe to my YouTube channel and join us whenever you can, live or on demand, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. By studying Torah together, we can each free and liberate the neshama, the amazing spiritual potential that God placed within every one of us. So, let's move forward. We learned about Hallelujah. We talked about the Pharaoh, his instructions, his pleading, the notion of our transformation into becoming Hashem's servants or slaves rather than the Pharaoh's. We discussed the notion of God's presence now to be eternally known. We talked about the global nature of this message and its promulgation. And now, we begin to say, Rom al-Kol Hashem. God is exalted over all nations. Our first point of departure will be the commentary written by Rashbam, the famed grandson of Rashi, one of the outstanding Tosafists, who also completed some of Rashi's own commentary when it was missing on the Talmud. Let me begin by reading to you the words of Rashbam. Ram al-Kol Goyim, God is exalted above all nations. 
Ad ato, until now, says Rabbeinu Shmuel, hoyu suvurim she'einu mashgiach al kol sevel. Prior to Matan Torah, as we discussed yesterday, it was the opinion of the vast majority of nations. There may be a creator. Perhaps the world isn't an accident. But God is not involved in the comings and goings of the universe today. He's far greater than that. He's left the running of affairs in the hands of others. Those are the shamans, spirits, or angels that people were worshipping. Ba'ato. But now, after the event of Yitzias Mitzrayim, Romal Kol Goyim Hashem. Now Hashem is exalted over all nations. His glory is upon the heavens. Rashbam also explains the next verse, which reads, Mi Hashem Elekeinu. Who is like God? Our God. Hamagbihi Lashavas who dwells on high, and yet looks down so low on heaven and earth. Says Rashbam, that is to say, for as exalted and great as God is, his humility is even greater. This is narrating the story of the Exodus. Do you remember the words in the Haggadah? Not by virtue of an angel. Not by dint of a messenger. It was God. God himself who revealed Open miracles on the night of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim at Makat Bechorot. Indeed, these verses narrate the awareness that swept across Egypt and by extension the civilized world of the presence of Hashem that they knew that Hashem, the creator of the universe, beyond anything we could imagine, is involved. Mashpili lowers himself Bashamayim of Aretz the greatness of God is to be proverbially found in God's humility, God's readiness and preparedness to lower himself into the very dust, as we will see. Vezehu, and that, says Rashbam, is the meaning mikimi me'ofardol. He raises the poor from the dust. To better understand the words of Rashbam, or how this relates to Yitzias Mitzrayim, the process of the Exodus, I want to read just a little bit more from Rashbam's commentaries, and then we will expand this, all the things we learned in Rashbam's name a little bit. Rashbam also wrote, Motsonu bemizmar hazeh, we find in this very psalm, Hey, Yudin Yaseris, there's ten extra Yuds. The ten extra Yuds are Magbihi, Mashpili, Mikimi, Lohoshivi, Moishivi. 
These words mean things like God who dwells, dwells on high, and yet looks down or lowers himself. He raises to seat us. Moishivi, he restores. All of these Hebrew words could have been written without the final yud. Five words, five yuds. Why? Says the Rashbam, This corresponds not only to the Exodus, but in fact it corresponds to the 50 proverbial makot which unfolded at sea. Now, I find this really interesting. Because the Gemara told us that the reason that we read the Hallel is because it contains Yitzia Mitzrayim and Kriyas Yamsuf. But when the Gemara came along and said, Yitzia Mitzrayim, where do you find an open reference to the Exodus? The Gemara's response was, Bitzait Yisrael Mitzrayim. When the Jewish people left, exited Egypt. Kriyat Yamsuf, Dechsiv Hayom Ra'o Vayonis, the sea saw, and shrank or retreated. We'll talk about that tomorrow. So the five ideas, the first two of the five ideas, are the Exodus and Kriyat Yamsuf, which seem to be evidenced or spelled out in the second chapter of Hallel, Psalm 114. And yet, if we're learning Rashbam properly, we see that in the first Psalm, we're also alluding to Yetzias Mitzrayim, and we're also alluding to Kriyat Yamsuf. I wanted to mention that several episodes ago, I shared with you the commentary of the Abarbanel that's cited by the Rebbe and his Haggadah, that the first two Psalms of Hallel, those first two chapters speak of the past, and the next chapters speak of the future, the balance of the, so to speak, three ideas. That's the idea of the future, the coming of Mashiach and Chiyas HaMesim. So Abarbanel says we divided. Before the first half of the night, we focused on the past. In the second half of night, we look forward into the future. And this is a key component in understanding the division of Hallel, which is not really, as we learned, a typical reading or recitation of the Hallel prayer. Okay, my friends, let us better understand the ideas that have been articulated by Rajbam. They are, number one, the notion of God's presence. Number two, the notion that God is found on high and below, and that in the lowest of places and the highest of places, God is found equally, or so it seems. Rajbam says, in the place of grandeur and in the place of humility we find the greatness of Hashem. And lastly, we see that this is uh, right there in Kriyas Yamsov. It's actually encoded into the story, the narrative of the very Exodus itself. With regard to that idea that Hashem's presence is found throughout, as we began to develop the thesis in the previous episode. The Maharal of Prague, in his concluding words 
on this first chapter of Hallel states the following. We opened with the words Hallelujah. We conclude the Choysim Hallelujah. So that we conclude on the same note we began. Halal betchila, halal besoif. Praise in the beginning and praise at the end. This is instructive. It shows you. That in all the things God does, rak halal is only praise. Some of us do some good things. Some of us are deserving of some credit and praise on occasion. And we all make mistakes. All of us do. We like to hear praise. We don't like to hear criticism. Truth be told, criticism is probably healthier for us because we can actually grow out of that, which praise does nothing for us per se. Self-esteem is important too. We, as mortals, are filled with possibility for achievement and failure. And invariably, we will always fall short somewhere. As King Solomon wisely observed, Ein tzaddik ba'aretz, There is no righteous person who doesn't make a mistake at some point. There is no person about whom you can say, Kulay halal. It's all beautiful. It's all praise. It's all complimentary. Do you remember we talked about the word hallelujah, the unique nature because it has Hashem's name in it and the praise in it? And we said this is only for God. Maharal explained that things like thanks, exalt, praise, these things can be used for people also. But hallelujah in the same word means praise be the Lord, praise be God. It can only be used for Hashem. And therefore hallelujah is unique to Hashem. So the, the Maharal finishes this idea and he says it's all encompassing. It's a circle. A circle of praise. We can only see the praise in Hashem. Because he has no shortcomings. He has no imperfections. He doesn't need to be lectured by you and me. God needs to be praised. We have the privilege of praising God, not wagging our fingers at God. We find the same thing when it comes to words like we also find the Halal HaGadol opens with the word and it ends with the word So this is a, a, a general picture of how we view the Halal. And I want to suggest that it goes beyond just how we praise Hashem, but it also speaks to the all-encompassing reality of divinity. Just as God is omnipotent, all-perfect, praiseworthy, so too God is everywhere, always, absolutely. is a very, very interesting idea which is talked about in various Maimarim of Chassidus, based on this notion of Rom al-Kolgoyim Havaya. There are Maimarim from the Alter Rebbe, found in Lekototera and Shir Hashirim, the Siddur that was printed in the lifetime of the Mittel Rebbe, 
with my marim of his father as they were developed by the Mittler Rebbe himself also begin to talk about this idea in the commentary on Halal. But it's an idea which shows up on occasion in the Mamarim of Chassidus. I'm going to share with you the, this idea as it was articulated by the Rebbe in a Mimer that he delivered in 1962. But it's, it's based on the things of the teachings of the Rebbeim. So, Ram al God is exalted over all nations, actually serves to delineate the distinction between the faith system or faith credo of Yiddishkeit and the ideas and notions of spirituality as they are espoused by other faith systems, namely. In the non-Jewish perspective, and unfortunately many Jewish people don't have a Jewish perspective. How could they? You don't have it by accident. I once asked somebody, do you have a Jewish perspective on things? He said, I don't know. I might. <laughs> and that's like asking somebody who never sat behind the wheel, do you know how to drive? And he said, I don't know. Maybe. A Jewish perspective is a Torah perspective. A perspective that a Jew has is a perspective that a Jew has. It's not Jewish per se. Jewish is Torah. That is intrinsically Jewish. Not every Jew is a reflection of Torah. Every Jew is supposed to attach himself to the Torah. He's supposed to become a diffusion point for Torah. So the Torah slash Jewish perspective is different than what we would call the worldly or the other than Torah perspective. Most people think that God is found in heaven. Most people believe that closeness to God is achieved through meditation, contemplation, and that holiness is to be found in a monastery or in the summit of a mountain, or at least in isolation of the comings and goings of everyday life. Things like abstinence, starvation, self-deprivation, and denial are the path of aestheticism that leads to holiness. Or so think so many. Hasidus explains by highlighting the Torah truths in a way more brilliant than they had ever illuminated previously. That, that is a profoundly mistaken notion. It's just not true. That the Reimimus, that the glory and greatness of God is found no more in the heavens than it's found on earth. Rom al Kolgoyim. The nations say Rom, the greatness of God in the heavens. God in Himmel, they say. God in heaven. The more spiritual, the more divorced from material, the more holy it must be. This is rooted in a mistaken ideology or a theology that bases its perspective on creation as being what is called in the writings of classic Jewish philosophy, ila va'olu, freely translated as cause and effect. An example of cause and effect in our world, meaning in our own personal life, is 
intelligence and emotions. All healthy people have the ability to look at things objectively, and we have the ability to relate to things. People who can only see things from an intellectual perspective, but cannot love, cannot get excited, never get upset, don't feel pain or joy, are unfortunately missing a piece of their humanity. That's uh, a stunted individual. Humanity is not only comprised of intelligence, even if science terms us homo sapiens or the smartest animals, we are actually different not only intellectually but also emotionally. A human being is able to develop an emotion. In the animal world, emotions are all organic, reflexive. The animal doesn't learn to love, it loves naturally. The love, the maternal love that a bird feels or a tiger feels as Rambam, Sefer Achinuch, and so many of the other great medieval sages maintain, is something inherent to their nature. It's instinctual. An instinct does not set human beings apart. Yes, we have instincts. The survival instinct is an instinct, like an animal instinct. The love we might feel for children, especially maternal love, is what we would call instinctual. But the love or concern that you might develop for a friend is a relationship that is built and developed. In the animal world, there are no marriages, per se. There are no relationships, per se. The animal doesn't understand that. He cannot wrap itself around that. It only functions by instinct. We, human beings, are expected to rise above our foibles, our minutia, our selfishness, our disinterest, in being social, friendly, caring, sensitive. But that's because the mind is supposed to affect the heart. That's because we're supposed to learn about the way things should be, and then that filters through to our emotions. And the range of emotion or capacity for emotion is in perfect corollary with the range or capacity for our intellectual maturity. As the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, small children get upset from small things. When people get older, they can still be upset. But hopefully, it's for things of greater consequence. Because as we mature intellectually, we also mature emotionally. The intellect and the emotion are ultimately ilava'olul, one causes the other. Now, the intellect is objective. The emotions are, by definition, subjective. An idea understood is not about how it affects me. I don't like or dislike. I either understood or didn't. Emotions are how I feel about it. We could call that a step down. We could call that stepping outside of an objective truth, where we now move into a subjective truth. So where will objectivity be found? Or where will more truth be found? 
In the realm of the mind or in the realm of the heart? Be honest. Of course in the mind. So people make the mistake that I've explained of assuming that God's creation of the universe functions in the same fashion. Ilova olil. One cause begets an effect. And that effect becomes a cause for the continued domino effect or evolving of reality. And so the higher we go, the less material or actual or technical or limited, the closer things will be to God. But this theology is rejected by Judaism entirely. Rather, we don't believe that God created the world through what is known as a pecking order of cause and effect, and a world that evolved, but rather all worlds, the spiritual world and the material world, were brought into God with a wondrous divine ability which we call yesh me'ayin, something from nothing in Latin, ex nihilo. And that idea of ex nihilo means that heavens or the limitations of ideas, the limitations of theories, the limitations of potential, and the limitation of the actual are all limitation. God is limitless and this is limited. So limited is yesh me'ayin. And as such, God is not found any more in the realm of the spiritual than God is found in the realm of the physical. You want a spiritual experience? Find a person who's needy and feed them. That's a spiritual experience. That doesn't mean you'll feel spiritual, but when we talk about a real, true spiritual experience, it means closeness to God. Just because in your mind you feel spiritual doesn't mean you're close to God at all. Some expressions of faith are profoundly God-distancing. They're called idolatry. You're not having a God experience, you're having a self-experience. You're emoting. You call it faith, but you're worshiping yourself. So where's God found? God's found when His instructions are followed. In some ways, God is found on earth, even more so than we can find God in the heavens. This is a radical idea. It was introduced to the world at the time of the Exodus. This is the meaning of what Rajbam says. Till now they thought, God's not involved. Now Rajbam says, now the nations understood, but they understood it in a twisted fashion. They thought God has found more in the heavens. They said, yes, God is here. More in the heavens, but he's here too. God isn't here too. God is everywhere. As the nursery rhyme goes, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. It doesn't just mean right, left, up, down. It means the heavenly reality, the spiritual worlds, the material worlds. God is everywhere. That's what's being said to us. And so the Rebbe says that let's talk about those, those five yuds, right? Remember the yuds we talked about? Hamashpili, which were indicative of the notion, according to Rajbam, of God's presence unfolding in miraculous fashion at the crossing of the Reed Sea. 
So there's a Zohar. The Zohar says, what is the meaning of Hayoshvi Bashamayim? Hayoshvi Bashamayim is an expression found in the 123rd Psalm. God who sits in the heavens. The Zohar says it should have said Hayoshev Bashamayim. What's Hayoshvi? Why is there a Yud at the end? So he says the Yud is indicative of Hashpala Yaseira, God lowering himself. Yud is, of course, the smallest of the Hebrew letters. Very interestingly, I found that Maharal of Prague writes that the five Yuds at the end represent the word being drawn down yet lower, reflective of this Zoharic statement. And so we need to appreciate that from a Jewish theological perspective, the fact that God in the heaven is in the heavens is no less of a lowering for God than God on the earth. In every situation, God lowers himself. In every situation, God, if you will, allows himself to be found within the frame of finitude. Infinitude. Infinitude is not only space. Ideas are finite. Mathematics is finite. It doesn't have to fit into a certain space. Finity doesn't only mean space. Finity can mean it has to fit into the certain frame. Music is finite. Music is only music if it's musical. If it's just noise, it's not music. That's the finity of music. Finity of love is things that I'm attracted to. If I'm not attracted to it, it's no longer love. That's the finity of love. The finity of awe are things I'm in awe of. If I'm not in awe of it, then it's outside of the range of, of awe. It's not yira. These are all finite concepts, and they're all profoundly aphysical. They have nothing to do with the material reality. But that's precisely the point, that the infinite infinitude, or the infinite God, could be found within the frame of finity, any kind of finity, whether it's physical finity, whether it's spatial finity, whether it's time, the finitude of time, or a particular system, it's all finite. And finitude is a step, proverbially speaking, down for the infinite God. So this then is the deeper meaning of Ramak Goyim. They think, But the response is, no, no, it's actually not so. Who is like the Lord, our God? What is the meaning of who dwells on high? But Lashoves, the word to dwell, actually comes from the word Yeshev, which means to sit. And do you know when a person sits, they become physically lower? So if somebody's six feet tall and then they sit, they're going to be much lower. It also indicates getting into a situation. You're not just a bystander. Now you're seated at the table. It's a euphemism. It means you're engaged. You've allowed yourself to get drawn in. So sitting represents a lowering. And the Rebbe says that's precisely the point. For God, what's exalted from the word hagba, elevated, is lashovas. It is, so to speak, God taking a seat. So much so that for Hashem, it's mashpili. It's a lowering. Bashamayim uvaretz, in a heavenly reality and in a terrestrial reality. In words that are perhaps a little bit easier to understand, somewhat less, less mystical, we have the Abar Benel, the Zevach Pesach, who says this. 
The nations of the world acknowledge that God is indeed the master of all. However, here's their mistake. They say that his abode is the heavens. But beneath the heavens and lower, it's beneath God's involvement. That's not holy, that's not spiritual. That's technical. God doesn't get involved in technicality. The devil is in the details, not God. God has nothing better to do than get involved in people's minutia. You've got to be kidding. This is counterfeit, wrote the Abarbanel. Even though God is in the greatest heavens, He still looks at what happens or supervises what's beneath. But really, Hasidus develops this, as I just shared with you, far beyond that. It's not that God is also on the earth. In truth, the notion of God being found in the heaven or the earth is, if you will, a lowering of the exalted reality, if you can even use that word, of godliness and of divinity. Now this is, this is somewhat profound. And it dovetails into an idea which we have previously emphasized that Matan Torah is the beginning of Jewish theology. The beginning of this global perspective that our job, our mission, our purpose is to promulgate the idea that Hashem is here and there and everywhere. And everybody saw it at Matan Torah. I refer you back to two episodes ago where I shared with you the words of Nachmanides. Of, of Ramban at length in this. Back to the narrative o, of the actual Exodus. Rashban began by saying, yeah, yeah, it's actually found in those waters that crashed apart or ripped apart. Which incidentally fits very nicely into this whole idea of the Divine Presence because as is explained in Hasidus, the notion of the division of the sea, the crossing, the ripping open of the sea, that the sea represents the spiritual reality. That which is covered and can't be seen. You look at the ocean, you don't see what's inside it. The ground represents that which is overt and seen. And Hashem revealed to them, that what you think is hidden, concealed, or heavenly, spiritual, is actually as plain as earth. God is everywhere equally. That's Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So we can see that the first chapter of Hallel does speak to the very essence of the narrative of the Exodus. And as the Marshal put it, the essence of our faith. It's not just the narrative, because the narrative of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is directly linked to what we, the Jewish people, believe in, insofar as Hashem's imminence is concerned. So let's go back now to the actual details. God who is on the high and below, who lowers himself, so to speak, upon heaven and earth equally. So what does that God do? God raises Mekimi from the word Mekim. He raises Me'afar from the dust, Dol, Dal, means the poor. Mekimi me'afar do. Me'ashbeis. From the trash heap, 
Hashar Akadish Baruch who raises Yorim Evyoin. Uplifts, exalts the Evyon. The Rebbe once noted that this idea of lifting the poor from the dust and the impoverished from the trash heap, it sounds redundant. It's talking about somebody who's down in the doldrums being uplifted. So the Rebbe said that mikimi from the word make him is used for the term dull, poor. And there we use the term of dust, raised from dust. But ashpais, the garbage heap, there we talk about not mikimi, but yorim, uplifting. And who evyin? So the Rebbe says the verbs and the nouns are all, of course, in perfect synchronicity. And he said this, we have learned that an evyoin is somebody who is at a lower level than a dull. Dull is one who has nothing. Nothing. They possess nothing. An evyoin is not only somebody who possesses nothing, but the word evyon is related etymologically to the word tav, which means hungry or desperate. A simple metaphor. Suppose I have no food. I've just eaten a meal. I'm sated. I don't feel hungry. If somebody asks me, from where will your next meal come? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have anything. I have no possession to speak of. But I'm not hungry yet. Compare that to the person who not only has nothing to speak of, no possession, but he feels a tremendous hunger, he's desperate. People do desperate things when they're desperate. The Evian is a desperate individual. It's one thing to be poor, it's another to be desperate. So the Rebbe says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us that there are some people who are destitute, they have nothing, Kodesh Baruch who raises them from the dust. And then there's those in the trash heap. They're not just in the dust. They're in the garbage. They too are raised by Hashem. And that requires not just make him, which means to stand upright, but actual lifting. Lahorim. They need to be uplifted, taken out of the trash. What does this have to do with the narrative of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. In the Psikta Rabasi, which is a collection of teaching of the genre of Mishnah from our sages, the Psikta Rabasi says this, when the Egyptians leveled a decree, Al Yisrael against the nation of Israel, they said, as is detailed in the first chapter of Exodus, call Haben Hayeloid, any baby boy born will be thrown into the river. What did Jewish mothers do? So the Psikta says, The Jewish mother, when she felt labor pangs coming on, or maybe when her water broke, 
She would find shelter in the trash heap where nobody would look for her. You know, imagine they give birth in the trash heap. Jewish babies born in a dumpster. It doesn't get lower. The heavenly presence came, whatever that means, and washed the baby, cleansed the baby, malbishai, clothed the baby. And this is alluded to by the prophecies of Ezekiel. So me'ashpeis yarim evyin is something we actually experienced during the terrible ordeal of Golos Mitzrayim. That's me'ashpeis yarim evyin. And they were lifted from being a woman who gave birth in a trash heap. From here they were lifted to, the Pasuk says, Lahishivi imnidivim, which literally reads as, to seat them with the nobles. Rajbam says that it doesn't just say imnidivim with the nobles, but it says imnidive amai. Not Egyptian nobility. Hashem's nation's nobility. That refers, says Rashbam, to Moshe and Aaron. So people who really were at the lowest ebb of their human existence, giving birth in a trash heap, were elevated to becoming the people led by the princes of Am Yisro, by Moshe and Aaron. This is an example of how we see the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Golos Mitzrayim spelled out, so to speak, within the pages of, or within the words of this very psalm. Moshivi Akeres Habayis, the psalm finishes with the words, he restores Akeret Habayit, literally means the mainstay of the home, Eim Habonim Semecha, the mother of the children is joyous, Hallelujah, praise God. The Rashbam, as he is cited in the Haggadah, Migdal Eder says this, at the time of the Exodus, the Egyptian taskmasters couldn't believe what was unfolding before their eyes. What did they see? They saw Jewish children. They said, Jewish children? How could there be Jewish children? We killed all the children. We slaughtered the children. We built them into walls and we squeezed their blood into bathtubs. There are no Jewish children. But when we left Mitznayim, Moshivi Akeres Habayas, the mainstay of the home, was restored. The Akeret Habayas traditionally refers not to the man, but to the woman of the home. She is the mainstay of the home. Says the Rashbam, Hoyu ha Mitzrayim, Sevurim, the Mitzrayim were of the opinion, Shein Betelim Ipi They actually believed that they had succeeded 
in curbing the Jewish population explosion that no longer will there be a next generation of Jews. And when the Jewish people left, they saw multitudes of children. The largest number of Jewish people leaving Mitzrayim were not the adults, but the children. And what did they see? They saw Eim Habonim. They saw the mothers of these children that they believed had been broken. The mothers that they believed had been demoralized and destroyed. They saw the mothers of these children filled with joy, what we call Yiddish Anachas. When you see their children participating in the Geula and the redemption led by Meish Rabbeinu. They saw they saw all the children going out with us. And when you see Yiddish Kindalach, when you see a next generation of Jewish people, you can sing. That's when you can sing. I once heard from an elderly person I met many, many years ago in Detroit that the famed Lithuanian Rosh Hashivit Abachanam Vasaman, may Hashem avenge his blood, was visiting the United States in the late 30s on a fundraising mission and he had come to Detroit. Detroit was a, a city with a Jewish population. And he came to a base medrash and he saw a base medrash filled with people. I don't know how big this area was, but it was a room and people were studying Torah. And he said, what a terrible thing to see in America. And they said, people learning Torah. He says, there's nobody here under the age of 60. Where are the children? Where is the youth? Where is the tomorrow? Without youth, without children, there is no promise of a tomorrow. For Yidin, the joy, the aim, habonim smecha, is when Yiddish kindalach can emerge from the deprivation of galut, displacement, the dispersion and persecution. That is the joy of a Yid. And that was experienced first when we left Mitzrayim. The communist, Yemach Shemom, who sought to stamp out the spirit and soul of Judaism in the former Soviet Union, didn't mind if elderly people came to shul to pray because in their view it was the communist youth that represented the future. It was the youth. The old people will die, they said. There will be no tomorrow. And they were right. Except they made one small mistake. They didn't calculate that there would be a man like the Friedrich Rebbe who encouraged his Hasidim to risk their lives and so many paid with their lives not to preach to the elderly, not to keep the adults going, but to reach out and include the young. As a wise woman observed, the Friedrich Rebbe hat gemacht Hasidim von Kinder. My paternal Zaydi Allah Vashalom left home before his 12th birthday and he lived on the run from the KGB. He was arrested and incarcerated no less than three times. He sustained beatings and starving 
before the Holocaust came knocking on his door to keep Yiddishkeit alive. That was the kind of young person whose souls were kindled by the Friedrich Rebbe's Mesiris Nefesh in the Soviet Union. They know that in the early 50s, the Rebbe founded the Chabad's premier outreach organization. What was it called? Lubavitch Youth Organization. The Rebbe always had an eye for the children. I don't know of any other Hasidic Rebbe or major Torah leader who spent hours and hours addressing children. I saw this with my own eyes. I had the privilege of seeing the Rebbe come down to rallies of children, participating in reciting the 12 psukim, looking at the children, engaging with the children, speaking to the children. There are Jewish children. There's a Jewish tomorrow. And who, my dear friends, is the Seder focused on? If not the children. The child asks... And we have the privilege to respond. The child queries and it's our duty to educate him. And the entirety of the Pesach Seder is about parents, children, and grandchildren. The generations coming together. The focus of the Seder is the youth. All this is narrated in that first chapter of Hallow that we recite tonight at the Seder. The Psikter Abbasi goes further and says not only is this a narration of how things were for the Jewish people at large, but in fact this is a very specific detail about the mother of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshevi Akeres Habayis is to be understood in the following fashion. Omar Rebbe Berechia B'Shem Rebbe Shmuel Bar Nachman Rabbi Yebrechia taught in the name of Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Nachman. Who is the sub subject that being spoken of here? Who is this Akenes Habayis? Who is this mainstay of the house? Who is this woman? Akenes Habayis, the word Akenes can mean mainstay. The word Akenes can also mean barren. And Akara is a woman who cannot give birth, as we read in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Ula Sarah ain't lovolod. Sarah has no child. Ki akarahi, because she is barren. What does it mean, barren? The Gemara says she didn't have a uterus. How did she carry Yitzchak? I don't know. That's what the Gemara says. She wasn't physically capable of conceiving and carrying a child to maturation. Should I comprise uterus? I don't know. A miracle. Who is the barren woman? And if she's barren, how could she be a happy mother? So the psikta teaches, the subject, the mainstay of the home, the barren woman is Yocheved. That's the mother of Mesha. So the Gemara, the psikta responds, I beg your pardon. Yocheved is an akora. V'chi akora haita. She was barren. Hare yolda aharon u'miriam. She gave birth to Aaron and Miriam. Moshe Rabbeinu has two other siblings. Elo. The meaning of barren. 
says the psikta is not that she could not have children. She was circumstantially barren. At the time that Pharaoh leveled his decree, every boy who was born will be hurled into the Nile River. Cain was Amram, the father of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, who was Godel Ador, who was the leader, the Torah leader of his generation, considered to me the most exalted and inspiring personage of his time. And Amram continued to study Torah as a member of the Levi, the Levi tribe. And, Ar, and Amram, it says, even created certain parts of the Yiddishkeit as we know it. In fact, there's a famous commentary in the Rambam that suggested, based on this idea, that Amram was the one who brought the notion of gitten, of divorce, into. Shama Amram hu They separated from their wives, they got divorced. They are the ones who withheld the Jewish procreation. There would be no Jewish tomorrow. No marriage, no children, no tomorrow. No future. They divorced their wives. So Yocheved was, proverbially speaking, barren. And Yocheved yearned to bring another child into this world. She gave birth miraculously in her 12th decade. She was over 120 years old when Miriam was born. She was 130 when Moshe Rabbeinu was born. 124 when Miriam was born. She wanted to bring more children into the world. And her husband said, we can't do it. We can't bring children into a world of Jewish infanticide. The Psikta leaves out a little detail there. It doesn't tell us about there was little Miriam who prophetically intoned that her parents were destined to give birth to Moshiach and Shal Yisrael. But the Psikta here doesn't talk about that. The Psikta says, That's why Yecheved is called in Akora, but in Akora means barren. He says, the Besikta says, it also means Shenis Akra. She was uprooted in Mibesa from her home. Her home was uprooted. Her marriage was uprooted. So this is the narrative of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. Moshivi Akeres Abayas. The uprooted woman was restored. And as a result of that marriage, because Amram and Yecheved remarried, and everybody who saw Amram and Yecheved remarried also remarried. The mother of the children is happy, referring to Yocheved, by extension, to the entirety of the nation of Israel, as we learned earlier in the teaching of Rashbam that's cited by the Haggadah Migdalader. And now, my dear friends, I want to take you into some fascinating little details. I want to share with you what could best be termed Torah codes. Because the thesis that we've advanced today is that the, the story of the Exodus is being narrated in this very collection of verses. So the first interesting thing to note is, and I'm, I'm sharing with you some details from the writings of the famed Rabbi Lozer Rekeach, going back now to the 11th and 12th century. So Rabbi Lozer Rekeach, sews together a fascinating commentary 
from a, a multitude of different sources. He says, firstly, you should know that from the first Halalukkah that we start this with, the last Halalukkah, there are exactly 60 words. Samach Tevis. Why is that meaningful? Well, you tell me. How many adults left Mitzrayim? Specifically males from the age of 20 to 60? 600,000. Samach Ribui. So that gives you, so to speak, 600,000 gives you 60 hundreds. And he says, correspondingly, the Jewish people were given an oral Torah that was redacted into Shishim Mesichtot, 60 tractates. And that's why in the scripture itself, in the Sefer Torah, as we write it today, there are always 60 lines. Large letters, small letters. The difference in the large Sefer Torah, big Sefer Torah, and a small Sefer Torah is not the amount of lines. It's the size of the letters. Always, Samach Shudesh Yespecifitator. Now I'm going to razzle-dazzle you with some uh, Bible quotes. So the Rekeach says like this. Hallelujah. Start off Hallelujah. And then we say, Hallelujah. Avde Hashem. And we finish off with the words, Yehi. Shem Hashem. Hallelujah. So we start off, Hallelujah. We finish off, Hallelujah. Shem Hashem. So he says the first word of the Pasuk is Hallelujah. The last word of the Pasuk, Hallelujah. Shem Hashem, is like Hallelujah. Praise God. The next verse starts off with the Hebrew word Yehi. Yehi Shem Hashem Mevorach. May the name of God's name be blessed. And we say Me'ata Vi'ad Olam. From now to all eternity. So the verse begins with the word Yehi and ends with the Hebrew word Olam. The next verse starts off Mimizrach Shemesh Ad Mevo'o. From the rising sun until its setting, which is in the west of course. Mahulo Shem Hashem, the name of God, is praised. So Rokeach says the Pasuk begins the word Mimizrach and ends with the name Hashem. The next verse begins with the word Rom. Rom translates as exalted. Rom al Kalgoyim Hashem, God is exalted above all nations. Upon the heavens is his glory. So the Pasuk begins with Rom and ends with the word Kivodo. The next verse begins with the word Mi Kahashem Elokeinu, who is like God, our God, Hamagbihi Leshoves, who dwells on high, and yet Mashpili Lirot lowers himself, so to speak, or looks down, Bashamayim Uvaaretz. So the verse begins Mi, and it ends with the words Leshovet. The, word, the next passage begins the word Hamashpili, ends with the words Uba'aretz. I'm going somewhere. Don't, don't lose me. The next passage begins the word Mikimi. Mikimi may offer though means he lifts the needy, the poor from the dust. He lifts or raises the needy from the garbage heap. Ah, 
So he says, so it has the word lahoshivi, mikimi, and it ends the word evion. The next pasuk starts with the word lahoshivi. Lahoshivi means to seat them, so to speak, in the divi ame with the nobles of his people. And then it says, Moshivi akeras habayis. We start off with the word Moshivi. He restores the barren woman or mainstay to her home. And we finish the word Hallelujah. So, quoting Midrashic sources, the Rokeach says, if you take the first word and the last word of every one of those psukim and you do the gematria, gematria, of course, is the science of numerology of the Hebrew language. Aleph is one, Bez is two, Yud is ten, Chof is twenty, and so on and so forth. Add it all up, he says, and the number is Tafre Shlamid Bez. 632. Okay. He says, how about this? If you take the opening words of the five books of Moses, Bereshit, Ve'ela, Vayikra, Vayidaber, and Ela, do the math, what do you get? 632. So what's so great about 632? He says, ah, 632, if you add up the years of the patriarchs, Abraham lives for 175 years. Isaac lives for 180 years. Jacob lives for 147 years. That gives you Tofkov base, 600, oh, pardon me, 502. And then there's the years of Yocheved. Yocheved is the link between the patriarchs and between the generation that leaves Mitzrayim. Because when Jacob arrives in the land of Mitzrayim, the mother of Moshe Rabbeinu was born at customs. So she's the link. And her years, when she gives birth to Moshe, she's 130. So if you add to 502, 130, you end up with the number 100, 632. And then he goes to make, he makes cheshbonot upon cheshbonot upon cheshbonot, which it's going to be too confusing. The point that I'm trying to make there was this. The Torah has layers upon layers upon layers. And here we see that it just so happens that this verse, which narrates the Exodus, reaches deep into the past, the years of the patriarchs, links it to the birth of Moshe, reaches into the future with the Torah, and it all has the same numerology of 632. All right, I thought maybe you like that. I want to finish um, with this idea of how it narrates the actual Exodus. And then let's, uh, let's get personal. In the Haggadah called Yalkotov, it says that this entire collection of verses, beginning with the words Hamagbihi Lashavat, actually describes the Israelite experience in the land of Egypt, from arrival to the Exodus. He says it goes like this. Hamagbihi Lashavat, they were raised up to settle, he says, that's when they first arrived in Egypt. Where did we live? In the Toronto's Bridal Path. In Beverly Hills we lived. A gorgeous neighborhood. Goshen, beautiful place to live. That's where Yosef settled us. 
How'd that work out? Well, in the beginning, it was great. We were doing really well. And we were prospering and getting very, very powerful. And then the Pharaoh said, this is no good. I got a Jewish problem on my hands. Too many rich Jews, too many powerful Jews. Time to break this nation. Unfortunately, the story of our history. And so we went from Hamagbihi Lashavat, from sitting on top of the world, to be Mashpili, to be lowered. Mirot Bashamayim of What does this mean? We were lowered. But in the end, as a result of that lowering, as a result of the deprivation, the persecution we endured during the course of our slavery, we were able to see the miracles which showed that Hashem is Bashamayim. The miracles that unfolded, the presence of God in real time on earth. So that gives you, if you will, a sense of what this was all about. We were high up. Mashpili, we were demoted in order to see Shomayim Ba'aretz. Mikimi me'afradal, he raises the poor from the dust. Hashem raised us from the dust. Why? Not just to save us. Lahoshivi in the Diviamo to sit us with the nobility of our nation. See, in the, in the beginning, we started off with the nobility of Egypt. Our Joseph was the viceroy. We were hobnobbing with all the fancy people. That didn't last. But in the end, we got much better than the prince of Egypt, who is not Moses. Joseph was the prince of Egypt. Moses is the prince of Israel. And that's where we ended up. Now we're with Laishivi in the Divim, initially with nobility, but really in the end in the Dive Amoi, with the nobility of Hashem's nation. Where does this take us? In the end, Hashem restores us to the proverbial mainstay to our true land. We are the mainstay. We are the true mistress of the land called Israel. The seven nations were, if you will, a concubine who moved into somebody else's bedroom. They never belonged there. We came home to our marital home with Hashem. That's Eretz Yisrael. Eim habonim smecha. Who is our mother? Our mother who rejoiced over us. This says the Haggadah Yalkatev is Yerushalayim, as we say, Shabachi Yerushalayim, praise Jerusalem. Hallelujah, Lekayich in in Zion refers to the Temple Mount, the site of the Beis Hamikdash. Kichizak b'dichei shorayich, for he has fortified the locks of your gates. Beirach bonayich bekirbech, your children receive blessing within. Yerushalayim is our mother. The Beis Hamikdash is our mother. So really, the way the Haggadah Yalkotei frames this, this becomes an overriding commentary on the story, the narrative of the Exodus. Now let's get personal. Let's talk about, let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about the idea of Yetzias Mitzrayim, not only in every generation, but as we mentioned, behold, yoyim v'yoyim each and every single day. What does this mean in our time? Yeah, God helped our ancestors then. What does it mean to us today? The Ma'am Loyes citing the Zevach Pesach says something amazing. He says, when you see a person who has fallen to the dust and you yearn to be raised, maybe you're that person. 
Maybe you fell lower than the dust. Maybe you're in the trash heap. Maybe you feel the way our ancestors were before the exodus in Egypt. The lowest dregs of reality and society on the lowest level. Giving birth in a trash can. And then, and then Hashem raised us from the dust. And then Hashem lifted us from the trash. Says the Zevach Pesach, the Arbar Benel, if for whatever reason, according to God's divine master plan, a person is going to be impoverished or desperate, if he behaves piously, then God will raise him and God will enrich him. And here the Ma'amlo is citing the Zevach Pesach, the Abarbanel, delivers an incredible teaching. Do not think that if you will change your surroundings, if you move elsewhere, this is going to guarantee you good fortune. Moving to a new place is not changing anything at all. If it's your mazel, it's you. If you smell, you need to take a shower. Relocating to a new place is not going to remove the smell from you. If there's something bad attached to you, wherever you go, it follows you. And so, where should a yid go to? Go to Hashem. He says, this is not about space. This is not about a physical thing. This is about the notion that if somebody is chas broken, that they must trust in Hashem and that trust will lead to meishivi Hashem in the divim, in the divi amai. Hashem will raise that person to the point that they will sit amidst nobility as if they had never been at the bottom of the heap at all. Zehu, he says, this is regard to kaved, to status, dignity, to oisher, wealth and affluence. The same thing he says also can happen with Yiddish anachas from children. Hashem can do miracles, he says. He's done miracles. The barren woman who was depressed rejoiced over her children. She became the Eim HaBanim Smeichel. And so... Just as it was, so it is. And he says a person has to know that he or she must walk in the ways of Hashem. And then we will be able to experience our own personal exodus, our own personal rebirth, our own personal transformation, as our ancestors did. The Rebbe once said something really amazing. He said, you want Hashem to raise you from the trash heap? You want him to raise you from the dust? The best way to do that is to do what Hashem does. Mekimi may offer dull. You find that dull, that poor person, raise him from the dust. When you come across a person languishes in the trash heap, lift them out of that. And the Rebbe said, 
that is the greatest, most powerful medium to create an envelope for those same blessings in your own life. We finish with the idea of Simcha. Eim habonim smecha, halalukah. There's a fascinating Zohar, and with this I will conclude, that reads this entirely in spiritual prose. This notion of refers this refers to a spiritual level called Bina, which is the source of children. It represents the notion of spiritual, the spiritual feminine dimension, which is the source from which the children are born. So the Zohar says, All joy and all happiness of all worlds hinge on that. Hinge on this notion of birth or development. To be able to birth the next level. So the Rebbe's father asked, Why does the Zohar say, both the word chido and chedva it's the same word it means joy why does the Zohar have to repeat itself and the believe Yitzchak said something amazing that the difference between chido and chedva is that in chido there is a yud and in chedva there is a hey chido chido with the yud represents the notion of masculine energy as the Gemara famously tells us, Rabbi Akiva taught that ish isha, when you have a man and a woman who come together, shchina shruya b'neim, that the divine presence rests amongst them, the man brings the yud, and the woman brings the hay. Because both ish, man, and isha, woman, are spelled of aleph and shin. But if there is no yud, then there is no hay. If there is no presence of Hashem, we do not have a happy marriage. We have ish. We have a fire of passion that becomes destructive. So the man contributes the Yud, which represents Chochmah according to Kabbalah. The woman contributes the hay, representing Bina according to Kabbalah. Feminine joy, masculine joy. That's the Chido V'chedva. The masculine element according to Kabbalah represents the notion of benefaction. The feminine element represents the notion of receiving and developing. It also is said to represent the notion, one represents benevolence, and one represents the notion of restraint, even judgmentalness. And the point is this. Not only ought to we are we to rejoice when we are able to be benevolent and give, not only do we find joy in that positive expression, but even when there is a need for judgment, or restraint, or what's called stricture, gvura, that too has to be with joy. And the Rebbe said that when you're being chas judged, and when you have to suffer the withering effects of gvura salyonis, of divine severity, and you still find joy in serving Hashem, then that results in the yisrein ha'or min a total transformation, a light that glows ever so much brighter for it is manufactured of the darkness. This is a very, very deep, very deep idea. 
the chidah v'chedva that's being expressed in this verse is telling us that our most important mission in life is to be joyous, to find simcha in serving Hashem. That's how you can leave Mitzrayim. We can all transcend our limitations if we live and find joy in the mitzvahs that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us. May Hashem give us the koyach to serve Him with joy. May we merit to experience Yetzia Mimitzrayim on a personal level. And may we, Amir Hashem, have the privilege of seeing the world transformed as a result of our Avoida that's performed besimcho v'tuv levav, ushering in simchas oilam, the eternal joy, the rest of the halal, which speaks about the coming of Mashiach, and Tchiyas HaMesim, may it be, Bimheiro, Biameinu, speedily, and in our days, Amen. Thanks so much for joining. Have a wonderful day.